This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. Wow, great to have so many of you here today. Great, 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 great. Terrific day. I, so first off, welcome to our online audience. I've already heard from people from the whole way up in New York City out to Batesville, Arkansas. So can we just say a big hello at the count of three? One, two, three. Hello. Whoa, great to have all of you online joining us here today as well. And I want to start out by, by offering this. And it's a little bit of like, here's New Jersey. I'm going to go to Ohio for a minute. We're going to end up in New Jersey. So it's a little bit of a detour, but you'll see how it comes together. And you have a dear friend, Matthew Pennington, who's spoken here at New Church Live. He's a wounded combat veteran, and he talks about and celebrates every year on April 29th, his Alive Day. Now, some of you may not know what an Alive Day is. Some of you may, but I want to share what it is. It's the day you're wounded as a veteran and made it through to the other side. And maybe in some way, that's what today can be, is one big Alive Day. We start to see that, yes, life has breakings, it has challenges, it has things that are incredibly hard. It has moments that are more than heartbreaking. And at the same time, the job of a church is to create a chaplaincy for the future that is out there to reclaim hope. Hope that is not an objective thing, but hope that is love stretching into the future. Hope that is love stretching in to the future. And today we're looking at a topic that has touched so many of us, the topic of addiction, a topic that at times can get at that very core hope that is part of the human experience. You're going to hear a number of stories today, and my wish for you is this, that at least one resonates or or that there's something somebody says that if you're here and you're struggling, or you've got a family member who's struggling or a loved one who's struggling, that there's something that, that one of these three wonderful speakers shares that can help. It can just be a moment of peace in your life. We're going to start out hearing from Jill Bauer. Jill is a professor down at Temple University. And she is currently working on something called the Rooms Project, looking at at sort of an oral history of of these people who've gone through and conquered addiction. I give you Jill Bauer. Hey, guys. Um, My name uh, is Jill Bauer, uh, and I am the creator of The Rooms Project. And um, I was able to create this project because I am an alcoholic. Uh, My sobriety date is March 24th, uh, 2013. Um, So I just celebrated two years uh, sober this past March. Um, it's frankly shocking that I'm on a stage right now <laughs> talking about recovery, uh, you know, considering that I drank um, and used drugs uh, uh, relentlessly for, for 12 years. Um, so where do I even begin? <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm from a small town called Doylestown. It's not very far away. And uh, I grew up uh, with two parents, uh, very loving parents, um, and an older sister. And there's no um, 
addiction in my immediate family. Nobody suffers from any sort of addiction disorder. Um, and so when I started, you know, having problems uh, with my drinking and my drug use, I really didn't think um, that I fit the stereotype. And that was, you know, really part of the reason that I started this project where um, I've been traveling to different states um, and meeting with people that are in recovery, uh, taking their photos, and I'm having them tell their stories to me uh, candidly the way that they would at a 12-step meeting, which is where, you know, I personally found um, my own recovery. And so, you know, one thing that I'm finding um, when I'm meeting with people is that every person I meet with uh, tells me that their hometown has a heroin epidemic. Every single one. And I've met with about 70 people so far. And um, I think the, real, the reason that a lot of people don't realize that it's a nationwide epidemic is because people aren't really coming forward and talking about it. And that's, you know, why I really, you know, wanted to start this project. To me, um, you know, I grew up uh, upper middle class, um, to a very loving family. Uh, when I got sober, frankly, I was teaching at Temple. Um, I was working, you know, uh, a corporate job, um, and I was running my own photography company on the side. So to me, I was leading, you know, this double life um, where the idea that I had in my head about what an addict or an alcoholic looked like wasn't me. Um, yet all of I had all of the symptoms. Um, I was a blackout uh, drinker, and when I would use and drink, I would, I would frequently blackout. Um, and I started to see, I think what was most important was that though I hadn't really lost anything um, from my drinking, I started to notice that other people around me were getting things that I didn't have. So I may, you know, have started to miss different opportunities. Um, so, you know, a large part of my recovery, um, through, you know, the 12-step program that I'm in, um, and also outside of the 12-step program has been service. Um, and this is really, you know, uh, this project that I've been working on, the Rooms Project, is really, you know, my way of giving back, you know, to the community and showing people, you know, faces and voices um, of recovery, um, because I think, you know, that's something that needs to become more clear to people. Um, we need to be seeing people that you can, you know, relate to, um, so that, you know, like, you, you don't, so you, you don't have to think that, like, the, an addict is always the person, you know, um, under the bridge in Kensington. It is sometimes that person, but it's also sometimes me. Um, and people that are in the audience, and your brother, and your father, and um, so, I don't know, I'm just really flattered that I was asked uh, to talk, and thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you, Chuck. Again, I, I would urge you to take a look at the Rooms Project. Take a look at it online. It is... Do, online audience, you may not leave the service, though, to look at it. You have to wait till I'm all done. You know, and you can't look at it on your phone right now. It's, it's a great...
project because it does put a face to it. And understanding that these are real people with real stories is so important. Real people, real stories. Uh, wow. So Rachel Naomi Remen, some of you have heard me share this before, talks of threshold wisdom. What threshold wisdom is, is, is that wisdom that we get from the thresholds of life, those times of crisis, those times that can be so heartbreaking, but, but somehow, and I love this way she phrased it, she says, a whole lot less has meaning, but what has meaning matters a whole lot more. Threshold wisdom. And that's why we share stories, to, to start to really get clear about the way life is, about what actually matters, about what the ultimate reality is of this life. So with that, I'd like to introduce our, our speakers. We'll each be sharing just a few minutes about their stories. So I'd ask them to come out. Please give them a warm round of applause as they come out and grab a seat here. So again, I want to just thank everyone for coming here today, and a special thank you to the speakers. And with that, I give you Mr. Rob Nash. Is there? Okay. I'm feeling a little shaky, so I'm going to lean on the bench. Uh, my name's Rob Nash. And I always get choked up at the start of these things. As you saw from Jill's thing, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. And when you say that in polite company, people go, oh, that's terrible, you know? And uh, uh, it actually is the best thing that's ever happened to me. There were terrible parts of it. You can ask my wife and my family. But uh, as the thing said, I've been in recovery since 1983. This will be 32 years this year. And you can see my whole story. I recommend that you go to the roomsproject.org and, it, and all the details, not all of the details, but some of the details are there and you can see what it was like. And growing up, my mother was an alcoholic and we never knew if we were going to get the kind, loving mother or the crazy, drunk mother. And uh, I swore that I'd never be like that. And of course, that's exactly the way that I ended up. And... Uh, uh, the thing today that I wanted to to just say is that I want to be a, a beacon of hope for recovery, that long-term recovery is possible. It's uh, taken me on a journey that just has been, they talk about in the rooms, the life beyond your wildest dreams, and that's what I've had. And... Uh, <sighs> And the, the part that I think that's most important for me is the spiritual journey. You know, they talk about the 12 steps. And what the 12 steps are basically is find God, clean house, and help others. And that's what I've tried to do. And uh, in some cases, been successful at it. In some cases, not so much. Uh, I still 
have the same character defects. I'm selfish, self-centered, lazy, and fearful. Uh, my wife will attest to that. So, uh, uh, But in some way, I have been blessed with the miracle of recovery. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. Um, as I, I say, I've been a member of this church all my life, and the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg, there's 32 volumes. But it does come down to basically three things. Find God, clean house, and help others. And for the gift of sobriety, for the gift of clean time, I am eternally grateful. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Mary, and Chuck told me that I wouldn't be able to see anything but lights, and they are deafening. (laughs) Blinding, I mean. Um, I am the family component in the disease of addiction. Uh, Rob and Jillian shared their stories about their struggle with addiction, and mine is on the peripheral I lost a child to this disease about two years ago. Ian was 20 years old. He was the youngest of my three children, and he struggled with this disease. And one of the things I have become most passionate about is the negative stigma that goes along with this disease. Because in our struggles, both as family members and those who are in addiction, The stigma tells us that we are alone, that we should live in shame and we should hide. And that's what we do, because that's what the stigma tells the world to do. And it's a very dark, deep place, especially when you are alone. And I would like to see that stigma change. And I think the only way that that can change is if we look at this disease with love, rather than with anything negative. And one of the best ways I find to do that is to look at it as if it were another disease. What if this were cancer? Families who are struggling with that have jobs, they have other family members, they have homes, and all of those things fall by the wayside when you're trying to deal with someone who's in addiction trying to muddle through a rehabilitation system that is wrought with pitfalls and very confusing. I think addiction is something that even the medical profession has yet to come to understand. So in our confusion, the last thing we need is to be isolated or left alone or ignored or to be treated with shame. So one of the best anecdotes for that is to just treat people with love. Even if you don't understand what they're going through or if you don't understand anything about this disease, just show up for them. Just listen and give them a hug. You're likely to bring them to tears if you give them that hug, but that might be just exactly what they need. Thank you. Thank you.
I just, I wanted to, to thank these three. Again, folks, and, and I'm going to have a few words here in a minute, but just, you know, first off, I just want to honor the courage it took for you three to stand up here. I know Mary especially has been bugging me to get on stage for years, and I said, Mary. <laughs> Jill wanted to sing, you know, all that, all that stuff. So it really takes a lot of courage, but this is what courage is. As many of you know, courage is where your heart lives. Courage is where your heart lives. And this matters that we share our stories. It matters because that's how we connect with one another. That's how we become vessels for God's love to move through the world. So thank you three again. You can just sit in the seats. So what I want to offer to wrap this up, you know, is, is thinking about this and thinking about what all this means. Uh, we just finished a series called, I'm going to see who was really paying attention for the last series. We just finished a series called Church of? Oh, wow. You see, we had three people here last week. <laughs> Could we say it again? Church of? Mercy. Church of mercy. That, that, you know, that, that so much of church is trying to find that place. And Mary was really speaking to it, that, that place of mercy. Not a place where we're out there monitoring other people's behavior and not a place with no discipline to it either. But, but a place of actual active mercy where we're actually out there into the world, working out into the world. Again, groups like, like Angels in Motion, uh, St. Francis Inn, some of the other places where New Church Live, where this beautiful congregation is, is actually stepping out there to try to do something in our own small, humble, flawed way. And doing it because simply it's what Christ asks us. Doing it simply because that's what Christ asked us to do. Last week we looked at a service, you know, a little, a little bit from Christ where he talked about a hundred sheep, you know, and, 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 and if, you, if you're out in the open country and you're with a hundred sheep and one leaves, you know, what shepherd wouldn't leave to go find the one? And we said, well, I wouldn't, you know, because a lot of us wouldn't. It's just, it's so hard to do. You wouldn't leave 99 to go, go somehow try to serve the one. But that is what Christ asked us to do as best we possibly can. And what's interesting with this, you know, oftentimes what's funny, after I preach a sermon, it comes to me what I really should have said when I'm done preaching the sermon. And what came to me was this, after I was done preaching. I realized, like, the story starts with Christ with the hundred in open country, and one, one falls away, and he goes to reclaim that one. And he doesn't bring that one back to the flock out in the open country. He brings that one home. He brings that one home. I love that idea that what are we doing in this life? Well, we're learning to walk each other home. Blessings, breakings, the mess. That's, that's, that's what this is all about. And, and we can understand in, in a way, not understand addiction in its, in its totality, but we can understand maybe places where, where we can actually step forward. And I want to close by sharing with you a few of those. And this is what I've learned as a pastor. Some of these are going to sound totally crazy. First off, the first thing that I've really come to know is this. When somebody comes to me with a family member or with a friend or themselves struggling with addiction, I know that the story doesn't always end well. Well as I would define it. Sometimes people get so excited that somebody's finally seen a pastor and, 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 or, or, or a counselor of some sort, and they think, well, that'll be it. It's all done. That's not the way it will work. 
It's two steps forward, one step back, back and forth, over and over again. That is a challenge, but there's, but there's also a blessing in there. What else I know is that God is in all of it. See, here's a crazy secret as a pastor. When somebody comes into me and they're in tears and their life is falling apart, you know what I say? Hallelujah. That is great news. Of course, I don't tell them that. They would not go over well. But it really is great news. They're going to come to know what Rob talked about. And it's not that we ever get over those losses. We don't. I mean, we harbor them in our heart. As Anne Lamott said, we learn to continue to dance, even with a broken leg. But we do see that God is in all of it. I'll share with you this piece from New Church Theology. What the heart holds, what the heart holds makes us who we are. What the heart holds makes us who we are. And God's in all of it. And I, and I can tell you from working with people who are addicted, I've never met an addict who thought that addiction was a great idea. Not once. They're struggling. So, so of course, you're going to see a couple of people. You're going you're to see the self where that heart lives, what New Church Theology talks about there, that precious person. And you're going to see a lot of noise. The addicted self. The compulsive self. The self-destructive self, the self that lies, cheats, and steals, you'll see that too. But continue as best you can to see the person as God sees them. Broken, but still blessed at that same moment. God in all of it, in ways that I can't describe. I don't think it's any small thing for me that some of the people I most trust in my life are people who are on the other side of addiction. They know stuff. They have that threshold wisdom. And the last piece that I know is simply that we cannot do this alone. We can't. You know, I I oftentimes will get people coming to me. I know I've I've struggled with the same thing. Okay, that's it. I'm never doing that again, period, done. It's over. That isn't the way it tends to work. It really is something, whatever addiction you struggle with or a loved one struggles with, you know, it all starts with the concept of powerlessness. That we really are powerless. I remember attending a meeting, and it was midday. I was searching for one. I actually found one up by Doylestown, attended by all of three people. And I walked into this meeting feeling a little little awkward, and the guy offered me something that I just thought was so, so profound. And I'm going to have you repeat these after me. I can't. can't. You, (laughs) you can I'm asking. That saved my life more than once. I can't. You, God, can. I'm asking. See, it comes down to this view of God, goes way back to the Old Testament. Look at this beautiful line here from Jeremiah, where, where God is talking about what he really is all about. This is Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. By the way, for, new, for first-time attendees, if you want to pull out your phone and take a picture, you are welcome to do that. It won't be weird in this congregation. 
Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you, I'm going to have you say the H word there. Plans to give you and a That's what it's all about. God's saying so clearly that he is here to give us a hope and a future. And does that mean that that hope again is, is going to be realized in certain things? Like, like I wish when somebody came in who was addicted that I could tell them, well, look, you just do these three things and man, it's all going to clean up and you're going to be a bright, shiny penny in no time. But oftentimes that isn't what works. He or she will have struggles and, and life will go ways that I certainly can't predict and I can't imagine they can either. But that doesn't mean we don't keep on making the effort again and again to reach out in this area and try to make a difference. Try to make a small change. I love these words by Gandhi. I think they speak right to that. The true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. I think that's a beautiful way to close today's service. That's the hope. I mean, hope actually is planting a tree. Just think about that for a minute. Hope is planting a tree. Hope is sharing our stories. Hope is connecting. Hope is getting God is in it all. Hope is understanding that we can't do it alone. Hope is love stretching in to the future. Now I do want to offer a few things before we close with a prayer. One is if this service has struck you, if you'd like to meet some of our speakers, we're going to be going across the way over into the new church live office. So you come out here, you hang hang a diagonal right, and you follow the person in front of you. You'll cross over Huntington Pike. You'll see our office there. Feel free to ask me. I want everybody who knows where our office is to please raise their hand. Any first-time attendees, ask them. All right, they'll be glad to show you. They'll probably even take you there. A chance to get up, sit with a group, sit with a group, get a chance to meet and have a conversation. I also want to have two other invites. One is I do want to invite you back next week. Next week, we're looking at at coming to peace with the puzzle, which obviously is connected to a lot of the things we've talked about here today. Finding grace for the season that we're in. How is it that we find grace for where we are? When, When the pieces don't quite fit in our lives, how do we have peace around that? That'll be here next week at 10.30 a.m. We're going to do the same kind of thing. You have a chance to, to talk in a small group after the service as well to take a look at some of those things. The way we're going to close now is this. I'm going to join these wonderful folks in prayer. Then after the prayer, you'll hear some some instrumental music. You'll have the time then to maybe have a moment of quiet reflection, a chance to pray for someone in your life you'd like to pray for, or a chance to say the Lord's Prayer as you know it. Then we're going to close with a rousing song for all of you to sing together. Now, you have two choices. You can sing, or you can come up front, and you're more than welcome to say a prayer with with one of the four of us who will be up here. If there's something that's on your heart, and you feel like, look, I would like to, I would like to, I would like to connect, touch, and pray with someone 
about that or about that person or about that situation or about your own life, you're more than welcome to come up front and do that as we sing our last song, Stand By Me. So what I'd ask you to do is to please stand up. You four come on over. Rob, can you grab the mic? Here we go, Rob. We're going to start today's prayer. Rob's going to start it here with, Dear God, I wish, or Dear Lord, I wish. Uh, Dear Lord, I wish for hope for anyone struggling in any way, not only with addiction, but just with the struggles in your life. Uh, Today, I pray for hope for you. I'd like to pray for all those who are struggling with addiction and their families, and also that the stigma changes. Um, I would like to pray for anybody who's struggling to have the ability uh, to surrender. Dear Lord, thank you for your presence here among us. And Lord, what I pray for is this. I pray for this congregation, Lord, to leave with the eyes of love. With the eyes of love, Lord, that are able to look out on those in our lives who we love and struggle with addiction and to know. To know where the appropriate boundaries are, Lord. To know that we need to take care of ourselves. And even within all that, we need to continue. Continue to look out with the eyes of love. The eyes of hope. With the eyes of compassion. Be with all those, Lord, and I speak for everyone here in the congregation today. Many of us are touched by addiction, have loved ones who struggle with addiction. Lord, be with them in some way, Lord, some way. Let their hearts be stirred today to know this, that they are loved, that they are held, and that they are seen. Be with us, Lord. Help us to move forward into this life. Help us, Lord, to walk each other, to walk each other home. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv.